so to give you a little background about why we're going to be talking about what we're going to be talking about, which is pollinators and women in science and technology as a part of agriculture. Um, a few weeks ago, I went to a networking group that we have here in Iowa, and it's the Central Iowa Women in Ag Networking Group. And it was started by a friend of mine from Nationwide, um, Krista Soda. She's actually been on our radio show in the past. And Krista um, had started a group within Nationwide for women, and they decided they wanted to expand that to women who were involved in agribusiness, agriculture here in central Iowa. Because um, as you might guess here in Iowa, we've got a lot of the big ag companies uh, just based on where we are, right? So we've got the Corteva, we've got John Deere, we've got nationwide agribusiness. We've got so many other uh, manufacturing, agribusiness, agriculture focused companies here, and there's women involved in all of them. And so Krista and some other women set about to kind of connect everybody together a little bit more. And they started this group and they have uh, monthly meetings, breakfast meetings. They uh, each take turns setting up different events, tours, all kinds of different things. And I have not been able to attend for months and months. And um, there's, there's just always something else on my calendar, it seems like. And I finally got the chance to attend in December. And I remember that day thinking, oh my gosh, I have a million other things I need to do. And there's no way I can put that down and actually go do this. But I already had committed. So I went and I'm so glad I did. And I'm going to make it a point to continue to go to that group because it's kind of refreshing to touch base and to um, just be around people who are like minded as you are. And so it's, it's a really good reminder for me to stop and take that time to go connect. But so I went to this um, this meeting and it was at Corteva, which uh, if you don't aren't familiar with Corteva, formerly Dow DuPont Pioneer. And um, the topic was pollinators. And there was also sp- something called CRISPR. And I really didn't know what the subject was going to be. I am not a super science-minded person. I am not a real technical person. I love to take pictures. I love the beauty and things. You know, my brain, I always feel like works a little bit different than than that side of the brain. And so uh, I was kind of like, oh, what's this going to be? And I have to tell you that I sat there super interested and I took notes and I thought it was amazing. I listened to a woman named Carrie and Carrie is actually going to be on our show today. And she works at Corteva and she talked all about the pollinator um, status, I guess, that we have in our country, how it is affected by modern agriculture how it happened, where we're going from here, all kinds of really interesting things that I honestly had no idea about. I mean, I'm just as bad as anybody else who just reads stuff on social media and moves on because the only thing I felt like I ever have seen is the bees are leaving, they're dying, their colonies are collapsing, it's terrible, and we're never going to have fruits and vegetables again, you know, and um, so, but we're going to talk more about the why and how and where we go from here, as I said. So it's going to be really interesting. And, and also Carrie is a woman who has worked on the STEM side of agriculture for her whole career. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about that, because I think the other interesting thing that uh, we at Farm Hersey, but we don't always share as much as maybe we could, is that, you know, farming, farm hers, agriculture, it can look different for everybody. And 
Um, the science, the technology part of agriculture is very important to all of us who eat every day, whether we're connected to agriculture or not. And um, she's a pretty cool woman that's behind the scenes making a lot of these these things move forward. And I think it's really neat to kind of pull the curtain back and to get a peek at that a little bit. So I now have a guest here with me in the studio. Welcome, Carrie Karstens. Thanks. Yes, yes. So um, as I mentioned in the opening segment, I went to a presentation at Corteva where Carrie works and um, heard about pollinators. And I just, I didn't expect, honestly, and I don't, don't take this the wrong way. I didn't expect to be fascinated, but I was like, I couldn't stop thinking about it while you were talking about it. And even afterwards, I told a few people about it just because I thought the subject matter was so interesting. So here we are, because I think everybody here uh, should have the opportunity to hear that as well. Thanks. Yeah. So um, let's, let's, uh, before we talk pollinators, I would love to know a little bit about you and your background and uh, tell us why, why you work at Corteva, what you do. Thanks. Yeah. So um, I grew up in a farm in East Central Iowa near Grinnell. Um, long history of family farming. So multiple generations, beef, cattle, corn, soybeans. I think my grandma had turkeys at one point too. All the Iowa things. Yeah. Just whatever you could throw on a farm. We, <laughs> we did it. And, um, I think it was a great place to grow up. And my dad was actually a science teacher before he went back to farming full time. And so he really got me interested in the technical aspects of farming. I don't know if he would ever say that he knew he was teaching me that, but he did. Yeah. And so really thankful to get to grow up with that. Um, and so I pursued, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian for the longest time, like most kids who are interested in science and ag do. Yeah, and, yeah. it's a pretty common, yeah. uh, at least starting path, right? Yeah, for sure. So um, my undergrad was at Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa. Um, so stayed within the state for that. And while I was there, we were required to do a research internship. And I discovered pesticide toxicology in a roundabout fashion, um, which I is think what you I, would have to. <laughs> yeah, it's not something anyone knows exists until you fall into it. Yeah. But I applied for a research internship at Iowa State and was assigned to a lab that does pesticide toxicology research. And it's this interface between chemistry and the tools that farmers need in pesticides, as well as the environment. And so I um, loved what I did that summer and decided that's what I wanted to do for grad school. So I ended up doing my master's and my PhD at Iowa State in their toxicology program um, focused on pesticide risk assessment. So that's what I did. Yeah. What is it about that? I mean, because like you said, it's not something that most people even probably realize is out there. Um, but what is it about that that made you go, I love this? I have always had a passion for the environment, but also growing up on a farm, a really strong passion for making sure farmers have tools that they need. They work incredibly hard and they have a lot of bat battles that they face that the, most of us don't know about. Insects and diseases um, would be the, the two that I think of. And so they need tools for that. And But I having that strong tie to the environment and conservation, I felt really drawn to this area of study where you're making sure that the tools farmers have are safe. So it's hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You're getting them what they need so you understand how the tools work so that they manage the diseases and the insect pests, but at the same time, making sure that it's safe for them to handle as well as for the environment. So that it just was this love of the two things coming together. Yeah. So you went to Iowa State, toxicology, then what happened? Where'd you go from there? Um, two days after graduation, I started at Pioneer. 
(laughs) (laughs) I I joke with a lot of students to say, um, don't do what I did, like take a break in between somewhat. But I was looking for um, positions as I was getting ready for graduation. And I applied at several places. And Pioneer happened to have an opening in environmental risk assessment for their biotech trait um, area of, Mm -hmm. of research. And they were looking for someone to build a program. And I thought, how amazing to get to leave what I'd been working on in grad school and kind of pivot to um, the biotech side, which is still at the that nexus of tools that farmers need as well as environment, but they didn't have a, a large enough program for their trait pipeline. And so they were willing to hire someone right out of school to build this program. I thought they're crazy, but I'm, I'm in. (laughs) I'm guessing they needed someone really specialized. And I think it's interesting. I I think you said this in your talk too, that you, you, this career path could have carried you anywhere around the world and you got to stay right here in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. I applied at EPA. Um, I had an offer from EPA at a lab um, that they had based in Oklahoma. I had interest in a postdoc at DC. Um, there were lots of places I could have gone mm-hmm. and, and never thought I'd get to stay in Iowa, but it's been perfect for me um, personally as my family as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have kids, you have a family. I do. Yeah. yeah. I have three daughters. They're 12, seven and three, and they're a lot of fun. Um, and really glad that they get to grow up near grandparents. That's something that I got to benefit from as a, as an Iowa farm kid. And I think it's great that they get that too. Do your parents still um, have the farm? They do. So yep. your, your daughters get to go there and yep. experience a little bit of farm. Because do you live on a farm yourself? We have a small acreage. Oh, okay. My husband and I do um, near Ames. But yeah, on paper, I'm a farmer with my parents. I, I joke about that because all I do that's useful is write checks right now. <laughs> but, you know what? Every part that's matters. Right. That's right. It takes everybody yep. and all these different things in any operation. Yeah, so, for sure. Good for you. Um, well, that's cool. That That's... Um, I think interesting. I'm glad you're here in Iowa. And um, so tell us a little bit about what your job at Pioneer, not Pioneer, Corteva. Yeah. I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to. We'll get it right eventually. Right? Accept yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. What Corteva entails. Sure. So my responsibilities are for seed treatment regulatory. So my title, I was joking with you, is really long. It's Global Regulatory Lead for Seed Applied Technologies. And that's kind of a mouthful for saying around the world, there are coatings that we put on seed to help make sure that that seed grows and develops into the plant that it needs to so that farmers have the crop that they desire. Um, So we protect it with different pesticides, and we have to go through a very special regulatory process globally to do that. So EPA in the U.S. or their equivalents in other countries around the world. And my job is to work with our team of scientists and regulatory specialists to make sure that we do all the studies that we need to, to Mm -hmm. demonstrate safety and efficacy, and that we get those data to the regulators so that they can make the decision to approve or not around the world. And so I, I serve in kind of a coordination role for us, um, sit on the global business team for our seed treatment business and really excited about that opportunity and where we're going. Yeah. I mean, that actually sounds like a massive job because, um, I know as you talked about, like for any of these technologies or or these things, it's, it's years of research and studies and documentation and all of those things to get that to move forward. Uh, in the U.S. or or anywhere else, right? Right, right. It takes um, it can be up to a decade for the product development process for seed treatment. It can be longer depending on the product, but it's a lot of years of study that 
occurs. And then we have to compile that to be able to get it to the people that need it in those different regulatory agencies. Yeah. Which actually as, as a consumer and as a person who lives here and wants the earth to be healthy and strong for a long, long time, I think that, um, that, that is good. That's, that kind of calms me, you know, I mean, when you realize that all of the steps and all of the process and all of the, the thought and, intention that goes into this stuff. You know, I think, um, for so many things that we see in our world, you may not always realize all of that behind the scenes stuff, but it is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Carrie, uh, we talked a little bit about your history and who you are and what brought you to this role that you play at pioneer at courts have a gosh, I I will get, or I won't. Um, (laughs) but, um, what I was introduced to you about was the pollinator discussion that we had. So let's jump into that. Um, I wrote down a few facts that as fast as my fingers could type while I was listening to you talk. Um, one of the first ones that jumps out at me, and then we can go back and I'd love to hear um, kind of your take on some of the facts and where we are with pollinators. But one of every three bites of food in any meal is touched by a pollinator. Yeah, That is insane to me. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I I don't know why that was the, that was the piece of information that got me hooked on your talk. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more. So you think about, um, oftentimes we talk about pollinators or bees. Mm -hmm. We instantly think of honey and folks forget about myself included until I started really studying this space more the pollination services that they provide. So bees, butterflies, bats, anything that's considered a pollinator. Bats are a pollinator? Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. they can be. So um, you think about the the seed set and fruits that are developed. So apples, cherries, melons, um, certainly almonds would mm-hmm. fall into that. And we'll probably talk more about almonds later. But there's a whole load of food, one in three bites, it's estimated, that is touched by a pollinator because of the services they provide. So amazing. Um, another fact that I wrote down, and I'm sure you have more that you can tell us, $18 billion a year of ag production are supported by bees. Was it bees or pollinators? Um, this one is specific to bees. bees yeah. yeah. Little yeah. tiny bees, $18 billion a year of ag production. Yeah. You think Crazy. about um, like for the seed industry. So obviously coming from Corteva and our pioneer brand seed thinking about we produce a lot of seed for farmers to plant. And there are certain types of of crops that have to have pollinators to be able to get that seed quality set and the evenness of it. So canola, alfalfa, there's a whole load of them that, um, you know, corn is wind pollinated, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of other crops that we rely on as humans and for livestock production that are really important for bees. So that's kind of how we got initially tied into it was recognizing if bee health is challenged, that impacts us from a seed perspective, but also also broader agriculture, right? The pollination and honeybees are part of agriculture. We are one together. Yeah. And I don't think we all think of it like that all the time because it's not visible to most of us every day. I just thought of a fun fact. This is so random. I was a pollinator. You are a pollinator. At Pioneer (laughs) when I was like 14 years old, I worked in the field pollinating um, corn. 
And we put little like sacks over the chutes and we'd take the pollen off the top and move it down over the little chutes. Still an important job. Yeah. Yeah. It was you fall in that 18 billion. (laughs) (laughs) I am also a pollinator, (laughs) but it was, um, a interesting job actually to have. And it was exciting when I was 14 to make a little bit of money. But anyway, I jumped way off track there. It just popped into my head. Um, so what other facts are there out there that people should know about pollinators or bees? Or did I, did I already spit out the two most important ones? No, though, I mean, that's the important part in terms of tie to food production and the U.S. economy. You think about those two statistics, but then also the number of colonies in the U.S. And I think in the, in the media, we hear a lot about bee pop, bee pop, I can't even say it, bee apocalypse and um, <laughs> bee health decline yeah. and a lot of kind of scary talk about what's going on with bees. And so if you think about that tie to our food production, that's concerning It is for sure. So um, that was actually one of the areas that we wanted to dive into as a, as a company and um, broader in the ag industry. And so that's how I started working on it and starting to understand more about some of the challenges that are going on with bees as well um, in terms of their, of their health. So we, um, we hear a lot about different things like pesticides being a major concern for bees. But mm-hmm. when you really start to dig in and talk to beekeepers, you learn about the numerous challenges that they have. And yeah. the first one is that varroa mite that we kind of talked about in my presentation. And tell me what, tell me about that again, please. Yeah. So it's, um, it, I, I kind of call it a vampire. If you want to look at it that way, it's mm-hmm. actually, um, it's a parasitic mite that's looks a little bit like a tick. And it'll attach to the underside of the bee. Um, sometimes you'll see photos with them on the backs of the bees as well, but they'll attach to the bee and they end up sucking um, what's the equivalent of the liver of the bee. That's what they feed on. And That's so it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> so if you, I, I think during the presentation, I made a volunteer stand up yes. and, and hold kind of a, something about the size of a dinner plate up to her up to her stomach. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of pound for pound or size for size. If you were to look at a human holding a dinner plate, it's about the same size as what that varroa mite is on a bee, which is really scary. Like kind of terrifying to think about having something that big sucking on your organs. Yes. It's gross. Horrible. (laughs) Yeah. It's horrible. And, and it's a reality for beekeepers. And where do we know where this came from? Why it, why it exists? Has it, I mean, tell me a little bit more about like the status of this. Yeah. So the mite itself came from Southeast Asia. Um, so it's a, it's a pest that has kind of developed with the bees there. Um, but then eventually, if you think about, um, the honeybees that are in the U S are non-native, which a lot of people don't actually think about either. They came from Europe originally. Um, but in having a kind of non-native species in, our st- in our country, and we've been using them for mm-hmm. centuries. Um, you also have this mite that came in at the same time, okay. and so having the having the control, and we really saw the the mite develop more in like the 1980s okay. um, was when it kind of first entered, and then it just has exploded since then. Yeah. So we the most of the bees in the U.S. are non-native. Are there any native honeybees? Oh, for here? sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, not necessarily called honeybees, okay. but there are definitely native bees. bees. Okay. And so the initiatives that we've been working on as a company and broader in the ag industry, um, while we might use the honeybee as kind of our charismatic species, if you will, uh-huh. so something that people resonate, understand, um, the protection goals that we have are for are broader than that. It's yeah. for native species too, of course. Yeah. So okay, so we've got these mites, and they came in in the '80s, and that has caused a serious decline in bee colonies. 
Um, I know, you know, visually we can talk a little bit about it. You've, you've got a chart that shows that decline. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I mean, part of that is the bees or, or the mites, you know, but there's, there's other things that have, uh, added to that decline. Can yeah. we talk a little There's bit about been that? some interesting kind of human related things. So if uh -huh. you think about decline in the number of colonies in the U S um, it's gone, way, it's gone on for way longer than just the mite being present. Mm -hmm. uh, it started really when you think about post world war II and just changes in our economy and having more people move from rural areas into urban living, um, having jobs in factories away from the farm. So not having the space or even the time to have beekeeping as either a hobby or a source of income. So a lot of that was just human related, yeah. um, changes. So you see a decline over decades that's, you know, concerning, but if you think about people aren't actively beekeeping anymore, it, it really does kind of make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it never had struck me to think about that until I saw that. So, you know, this has become a bigger issue recently in discussions, but it's been a problem that's been building right. for some time. Right. You know, yeah, and there are numerous things that we have to think about for yeah. bees. Yeah. In addition to the mite, you think about other stresses that are going on with bees. Um, the mite would be the number one enemy and beekeepers will, will tell you that for sure that they battle, but there's, um, other trends that have happened even in our diets and the food that we eat that have played a role in challenges for bees and both a, a trend downward as well as a trend upward. Okay. So it's, what's interesting in the U S is actually since kind of the late nineties and early two thousands, we actually see an increase in the number of colonies. So we had a decrease post-World War II because people just weren't doing beekeeping anymore. And then an, starting a, an upward trend and that's all tied to almonds and how much, if you think about almond milk and almond butter and just almonds as ingredients and a whole bunch of the foods that we desire. And I myself am a almond M&M lover. So yes, yeah, everything that has almonds in it is a, and that, increase that we see at the grocery store too, in terms of that yeah. trend, it's all tied to bees. And I, I think that's super interesting. I mean, as a kid, I can't ever remember eating almonds. They weren't like something that we had around right. regularly. Maybe they were less available or just wasn't as many in the market or it wasn't marketed to us yeah, in the way that it is production, now. Right. Yeah. Um, but now like I have a little container in my bag that I carry around with almonds in it. If I start to feel like I'm slightly crazy and I need to eat something like that's a yeah. pretty quick fix. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, they are everywhere. Um, but so what, what is it? I mean, so obviously almond production has increased. Can we talk about how that has stressed the bees? Like the bees are the pollinators for the almonds. Correct. Can we talk a little bit about, um, yeah, like what that process is? So sure. Um, so obviously to have the nut crop produced, you have to have the flowers pollinated. And so what happens every kind of winter. So right now beekeepers will have their hives in in California. So a lot of almond production in the U S is central Valley of the Cal of California, mm -hmm. pretty small area geographically. Um, but the estimate is about 75% or so. So it's the vast majority of colonies in the U S get transported for almond pollination, which is crazy. It's crazy to think about that number of colonies. I don't know if anybody knows the number, like you say, 75%, like how, how many bees is that? How many colonies is that? Oh do we boy. know? I'd have to do the math. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I mean, millions of colonies and you think about there's maybe 
40 to 50,000 bees per, I mean, it's a lot of bees. A lot of bees. It's <laughs> yeah. a whole lot of bees. And so they, they normally live all around the country. People are commercial beekeepers, right? Yep. So, so they're transporting their hives to California. So they're really tr- putting them on trucks and trucking them across the U.S., to California for the sole purpose of almond pollination. So they're there. Um, I think, I believe the timing is usually January, February, March, and then they're kind of moving out and maybe going on to another crop. So they might go to Washington, um, you know, or head on for apples and other things. They may go down South and help with citrus or do, you know, they, there's a whole map you can actually find. And I'd be glad to share that with you if you want to please do, we'll put it on our blog. That'd be great. Um, so you can see the, the routes that, that they can often drive for the different crops that they help to pollinate. So it's all back and tied to that $18 billion of impact that, that bees and beekeepers have. And it's such a small percent of the population that does this too. So it's really amazing to think about the effort that they put in um, to help produce food. It's, yeah. it's amazing, but it's also a huge stress both on them financially as well as on the bees because you're literally trucking them across the country and putting them all in one kind of confined area in terms of being in the Central Valley for a short period of time. So there's you know, potential for disease swapping and other things like that, that is, is stressful. I think you might, either I made this up or you might've said it. It's like spring break for bees, I did say right? that. Guilty. Yes, like, I did say like that. Like they all show up there and they <laughs> spread diseases amongst each other and then take those with them back to their hive. And yep. this is kind of probably a ridiculous question, but I don't raise bees and I don't know that I've ever really thought to ask this or Google it. So bees belong to a hive, like that is their home and they leave there during the day and they go do their bee work and they pollinate and they come back there at night. Like they're, they always they're making, back- they're making trips throughout the day, th- throughout the day. Yep. Okay. And they actually have, so a lot of times people ask like, well, how do they know how to come back right. to the same hive, especially yes. when they're in this place? What if their hive like leaves them? Yeah. yeah. So, um, they they have a specialized dance called the waggle dance that actually they, they come back. It's like a communication form. So they, the folks, the folks, the bees that go out, <laughs> the bees that go out and, and actually find the, the pollen and nectar sources will come back and describe to the rest of the hive where this food source is. Go get it. And they use a dance that they do. That's very specific. That has to do with like angle to the sun and other cool things <laughs> like that. And it tells them the rest of the hive where the food is and how to come back. It's so amazing. It is amazing. It's so amazing for such a tiny, tiny little creature. They are impressive. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they are susceptible to disease when you yep. ship them all around. So commercial beekeepers um, are, like you said, it's a very small population of, of people in agriculture that keep the bees. Um, what are some of the pressures that they face? I mean, do they lose like you know, colonies can come and go for a number of factors, right? right? But it sounds like a really tough business. It is. And they've seen some of the reason we hear more and more about um, bee losses is they've had a a harder time getting through the winter. And they think that there's several interacting factors as to why that happens. But so you you picture, um, you know, bees lifespan on average is like maybe six weeks. So there's constant regeneration going through the hive, but the critical time for that then is to, is to have a really strong hive going into fall, then through the winter so that you're ready for almonds, because that's their main cash uh, mm-hmm. input that they're going to have economically for the beekeepers. 
Um, so if you have overwintering loss, which they've seen this upward trend, which is not a good trend in having more and more overwintering loss, then you need a way to combat that and to try to have stronger hives. And they've had to, one method they've used is more splitting. So they'll actually divide up the hive and try to regenerate that way. Um, but that also can put stress on the bees as well as the beekeepers because A, it's a lot of work and B, there's more input in terms of um, having more boxes and, and other effort that you have to do financially to try to get that to work. Also, you can be ready for your biggest like kind of prime time, like the Super Bowl for beekeeping, mm -hmm. which is almond pollination. Yeah. So interesting. So, yeah. so interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's see, we've talked about bees moving around. We've talked about the almonds. My next question is, is what does the future look like? Where, where do we go from here? What are some of the things that Corteva is working on or the industry as a whole? Cause I know it's not just you guys that are working on this. There, there's many parts of the industry that are working on this. Um, what's going to happen from here? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things we've figured out is there's still a lot we don't understand about bees. Um, you know, we joking about the dance and not withholding, you know, there's a whole load of research that still needs to happen so we can understand more about what, um, how we can help bees with all the different challenges they had. And I'll, I'll highlight one piece of research that has come out recently. Um, and well, maybe two. So I lied. There's two pieces. <laughs> That's okay. One, one is the Varroa mite for literally decades. We thought it fed on the blood of bees. And it turns out it feeds on an organ and it, that organ is like our liver mm -hmm. and it helps with detoxifying different things. It also helps the bees with their immune system function. So the fact that we just figured that out is huge. Yeah. Um, I can't believe it didn't make like the New York times or something. It was yeah. a major piece of, of research that occurred out of the university of Maryland. Um, Sam Ramsey is a great researcher that just graduated from there. Um, so knowing that that is a, is going on for bees. So you're talking about challenging them both from a, like a pesticide stressor perspective, or even, um, the pesticides that beekeepers have to use in their hives to help control hive pests, like, mm -hmm. like, like Varroa, as well as their immune system. So if you're impacting both of those aspects, it's no wonder that they're having disease challenges. Right. The other aspect is another interesting piece of work out of the University of Illinois that um, talks about bee nutrition and understanding that there's some key kind of vitamin equivalents, if you will. So like we kind of know when we take a multivitamin, why we need to take it right. because there are certain things we need in our diet. We're just starting to figure that out for bees. Yeah. And there's some key components of their diet that they need. Um, so to, for us to be able to develop, say a supplement for beekeepers to give, um, when there's not enough flower resources available or when they're maybe trucking their bees across the U S to be able to give them the nutrition they need that also helps them to up just to be healthier as a right. whole. Because it's the same thing for us, right? If we eat nothing but white bread and water for a month on end, we aren't going to feel very good. No. And they need they need that balanced diet as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of research that we're just like it's on the cusp and is just coming out that I think will lead us to better solutions, but it's when you take a step back, none of it's that surprising, right? They need a balanced diet. Mm -hmm. So how can we get them the balanced diet they need? not just supplements, but also the flower resources they right, need. And right. that kind of goes to your question about what is Corteva working on? Yeah. And so just um, right before the holidays, we announced a major initiative to put habitat, pollinator habitat on all Corteva research and seed production locations mm -hmm. in the U.S. 
which is a is not a small undertaking. And no. we're doing that partnership with Pheasants Forever, which is a conservation group that uh-huh. specializes in habitat establishment, as well as with 4-H, because we recognize that for us to make an impact, we want youth to understand what's going on with pollinators and also how they can implement practices that will help too, both in their communities as well as on their farms. Because a lot of 4-H kids, of course, are either in a community, um, you know, and active in their community, or they have a farm of their own. Yeah. Well, I I think that's absolutely awesome because what better way to to expand our knowledge in the future than to teach kids? I mean, my kids, we don't live on a farm. My kids are in 4-H. I hope they learn about this. Yeah. Um, I think it's good for them. Actually, I know my daughter's learned a little bit about this because she's taken a field trip to Corteva. Uh, but um, it's it's so important for all of us to recognize that, you know, it's not just one issue out there. It's not just, uh, you know, this or that or the other. And there's, there's all these things out there. So, um, a few questions that I have at this point are, what are some things that farmers can do if there are farmers listening here? Um, you know, as it relates to, to their own fields and their properties and their business, and then what are some things that like I can do? Because, you know, I, I don't live on a farm, but but what could I do to help the situation? Yeah, great, great question. Our, our belief at Corteva is everybody can do something. Mm-hmm. So whether you're an apartment dweller and you have like a window box on your patio or something like that, or if you're a homeowner in suburbia, or if you have actual acreage and you're a farmer or a landowner and you want to do something, everyone can do something. Um, bees need a foundation of a good diet. So having flowers that are are relevant for bees that actually produce pollen and nectar. Um, there are resources out there, uh, Iowa State University Extension, but also other extension across the U.S. have often great resources in terms of listing pollinator-friendly plants. Um, so that would be good for growing, you know, if you're in South Dakota and you have maybe drier soils versus Central Iowa versus mm-hmm. Kentucky, you know, there's there's lots of resources out there for what's relevant to plant. Mm-hmm. And that can be anything from your landscaping yep. to, like I said, a planter box or something that you have on your patio. Yeah. Um, so that would be one way to start. Um, the other thing that I always talk about that everyone needs to do is to read the label. If you are a person who uses weed control products or if you use you know some some sort of ant control or something like that around your home, there's... Like I said before, a decade worth of research that went into that tiny print on the side of the label. Please read and follow that because that is important. And the same thing holds true for farmers. Oftentimes we talk about reading and following the label for farmers and pesticide stewardship, but it's on all of us as homeowners as well. We have, we have a garage full of who knows what sitting up there that we can spray on anything if we, you know, have a problem or whatever. So you're right. I mean, I, I can't say that Read and follow the label, read and follow the label, read and follow the label. label. I said it three times before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that's, that's a really big key because it's not necessarily that the pesticides or the herbicides or whatever it is are bad for the bees. It's that, are they being used properly? Because all that research that went into this took this into account, how it would affect Exactly right. Yeah. Right? So there, there are even um, some recent developments in terms of the studies that we have to do um, to get a pesticide product registered. We've actually um, increased by I think it's five or six additional studies that are our baseline. 
just where we, where do we even start with a new pesticide product? Not talking about any of the field studies that we'd have to do. So there's a whole bunch of additional work that's going on to understand how to then write that label to help it be the most relevant and most protective for bees that it can be. And it may be things like don't don't apply during the day when they're flying. It might be you know early morning or evening application times. It just depends on the product, mm-hmm. but. It's on the user to be sure that you are reading and following that label because yeah. it's super important. Um, there's another initiative that the industry is involved in um, that I think would be really, really good for your your um, listeners to hear about. And that's through the Honeybee Health Coalition. Um, so that's an it's a cross sector, cross stakeholder group that I think would be great for for them to learn more about. Um, Because that's another way that they can learn about the topic as well as ways to get involved. How can people find um, that? Yeah, it's just simple. Honeybeehealthcoalition.org. So there's a great website with resources and lots of information out there. And stakeholders from food all the way to consumers. Food and and ag through consumers, conservation groups, academics, beekeeping organizations are all involved with various initiatives and projects through the coalition. Yeah, I I think I, I want to go check out that website myself. I know you mentioned it before when I heard you talk and uh, it is it is important for us all to kind of pay attention and yep. to know what part we what, exactly what part right. we play. We all play a role. We talked in the first segment about Carrie's career and kind of how she found her path. And I think that that is an interesting topic for us to just delve into just a little bit more. So Carrie, for young women out there who might be listening, who are wondering about their career path um, as it relates to STEM or technology, what what do you have to say on that? Yeah. Well, I don't know that I'd call myself an expert, but what I would say that I've learned over my 10 plus years in the industry is um, don't think that there's one set path, that there's like, I do step A and then automatically that goes to step B. I really view career path as like building a pyramid. So find some foundational bricks and learn something new in each job or each path that you, you've you taken and build that up to something in the future that might look like a pyramid or it might not. It might look like a treehouse. Who knows? But, <laughs> but there's not, I think we get in our minds, especially those that went into like science or, or some sort of STEM field, that there's like this linear path mm-hmm. to a career. And it doesn't have to be that at all. Um, oftentimes it's just discovering something new that you didn't know you were interested in. I had no, I had no knowledge of pollinators right. before say five or six years ago, but it was an area that the company had an interest in. And it was an area that they saw that I could help, help bridge gaps and learn more and, and make a difference. And now here I sit on, yeah. on farm her podcast. <laughs> and what a great yeah. growth path that has been yeah. for you. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's allowed you to flourish and explore something new and important for the whole company it makes I mean, a different well for the whole industry yeah, right i mean it's yeah. something that we talked about before bees and pollinators are a critical part of agriculture and i don't think that we would have reson it would have resonated like that 10 years ago that people would have thought of it that way so I, I feel very blessed to have gotten to work on this and the amazing people that i've gotten to meet too that's probably the most fun part for me um, and I, I would say too, you know, another piece of advice is um, be open to to learning from people from all different backgrounds and and sectors. That's one thing I've loved about this topic as well. I've gotten to know some beekeepers really well personally, um, and we don't always agree on things. And often we don't 
talk nice e- even to each other, but we've gotten <laughs> to the point where it's like this dysfunctional family that gets along really well. If we can right. say, Hey, um, I think there's a better way of doing this. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. Let's figure it out together. Yeah. I think that that is such important advice. Um, for young women, young men, anybody, yep. you know, as you head into a career that, that it's, it, it is not probably going to look just like what you thought it is. But if you are open to those opportunities and, and you're looking to learn and jump at what you're passionate about, they open up in front of you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've been very blessed that way. Like the internship that led to my career path, you know, not, not something I would have predicted. Right. Um, and in a company like where you work, you know, I mean, it's easy for like those of us on the outside to look at it and go, that's a seed company. You know, they make seed, they grow seed. That's what they do. And, um, I mean, I'd love to hear from you. Like there's so many different career paths and opportunities within uh, a company like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Every day I'm amazed at the incredibly smart people I get to work with. It just feels so fortunate. And they all come from different backgrounds in terms of their education or where they grew up. So we have, if you're interested in working directly with farmers, we would have, um, you know, opportunities within our sales staff or the agronomy group um, in terms of working directly in the field with farmers. Um, If you're more of a research bend, there's loads of jobs that we have um, everything from entomologists studying insect pests to entomologists studying beneficial insects like pollinators, Um, disease management, you know, basic agronomic research. So how do we, you know, grow more plants with fewer inputs? Um, You name it, it's discovery level in the lab all the way to field level testing globally. That's another really fun part of working at a company like Corteva is I get the opportunity to learn from people all over the globe about agriculture all over the globe. I, you know, have had to travel to Brazil and I've gotten to go all sorts of places. And, um, and I'm not that special. I'm just a farm girl from central Iowa, right? You so are there, are, special. <laughs> there are a lot of opportunities out there, yeah. um, to just learn and grow. I love it. You can even go, it may not be a career path, but you can even be a pollinator. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for taking your time. Thanks for having to, me. Yeah. To be here today. Yeah.